You're listening to a message from the church at Rutledge. For more information about TCAR, please visit thechurchatrutledge.org. All right. Can you hear me? I don't know if this thing's on or not. Is that on? Sorry, I'm getting old. That happens. Can't tell. I'm glad you're here today. We're continuing in our study through the book of Mark, and we're going to be in chapter 14. I'm glad to be in chapter 14. Um, No disclaimers to give you ahead of time like the previous chapter, you know, chapter 13, all that discourse, all that stuff, nothing uh, I have to preempt this with this morning. Uh, I hope, though, that you've learned as much as I have uh, through this study and enjoyed walking through the book of Mark. Um, so I know Nikki just prayed, but I'd like to pray as well, and and then we'll just get right into the message this morning. Father, thank you for who you are. I just want to ask you to speak. Um, may your Holy Spirit do what I can't, because uh, that's the only thing that will last. And so, Father, just open our hearts and our minds to your word this morning, and may you be glorified above all things. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, There's a guy named Graham Scroggy, the Baptist um, pastor. He he was associated with Spurgeon, went to Spurgeon College in London. This guy was born in England back in the late 1800s, wrote a lot of theological works, uh, wrote Bible commentaries, that kind of thing. And he said, "If if you cut the Bible anywhere, it bleeds. See, because the focal point of the Bible is Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And the Old Testament looks forward to the cross, while the New Testament, um, post-cross, post-New Testament up to today, we look back at the cross. The Old Testament looks forward, New Testament, post-New Testament looks backwards. You know, it's that thing of, if you were there that morning of the, that day of the, the crucifixion, his beating, him being put on the cross, you would have stood there and said, this is the worst day ever. They are crucifying the Messiah. But apart from that moment, even as we look back on the cross, we can look at it and say, that's the best day ever. And that's what God can do. He can just flip things totally upside down. He can redeem things like that. And so, even redeem us. And so, Oswald Chambers wrote devotional books. Some of you are familiar with those. Another person of this quote is is pretty well spot on. He said, all of heaven is interested in the cross. All hell is terribly afraid of it. While men are the only beings who more or less ignore its meaning. The Apostle Paul, however, said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Then in Galatians 6, 14, it says, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which the world has been, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So for us here today as the church of Jesus Christ, 
we are a church that is Christ-centered. We are centered on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's our focal point. Jesus Christ and His work on the cross for us. It's central to everything we are. Our practices, our ordinances, the fact that we, we're compelled to love one another, all the one another verses, everything is driven by, even, you know, that's our whole drive and focus is stems from the, the cross of Christ. Baptism, you think of the ordinances of the church, baptism is a, is a symbol of the death burial and resurrection of Christ. It's us identifying with him and his death and being raised to new life by the Holy Spirit. You know, the, the Lord's Supper, which we'll talk about a little bit today, is all in remembering. Those are the two ordinances of the church, the things Jesus said, you, as my people, I want you to do these things. And so those things focus us on the cross of Christ. Romans 6, 3, in, in regards to baptism, says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? In the Lord's Supper, we look back at and remember his death, his body broken, bloodshed. It says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Cut the Bible anywhere and it bleeds. And you can see this same theme when you take it in context, when you look in the Old Testament anywhere, New Testament anywhere, there will be this pointing to Christ and that event all through the Bible. So on that note, um, as baptism is the New Testament circumcision, Lord's Supper, New Testament Passover, let's look into Mark 14. As this is the last Passover Jesus would share with his disciples. Jews look forward to the Passover meal. Um, the family, there's some little parts to play in it. The dad would <coughs> ask, uh, he was the host, and the children would actually ask, it would be four times, it would be the question, and he would have four different answers, but the question would be, what makes this night different from all other nights? And the father would say, on all other nights we eat leavened bread, but on this night we eat unleavened bread, because leaven was always, as you see through scripture, it's a symbol of sin. And so the unleavened bread to symbolize the body of Christ, his perfect sacrifice, him being sinless. And the second question, they would ask it again, what makes tonight different than all other nights? On this night, on all the other nights, we ate all kinds of vegetables. On this night, tonight, we eat bitter herbs. And it's, of course, the Passover going back to Egypt and when the death angel passed over and their escape from Egypt. And when the firstborn were to be taken. And so the bitter herbs represented the sorrow of the time in Egypt. And so they would do that. And then on other all other nights, we would not even dip once, but on this night, we dip twice. And on other nights, all other nights, we sit, but on this night, we recline. That's the other two answers. We recline fully. So Mark 14, 1 and 2 says this. Now the Passover... And unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of people. Now, according to historical evidence, and this is I found this very interesting, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to some information I'm going to share with you next week, which totally blew my mind, okay? Um, 
as you think about the temple and how all this works and a path that Jesus walked and what all this means. But according to historical evidence, um, particularly the records of a guy named Flavius Josephus, he said on one particular Passover around this time uh, that we're reading here in Mark, in the temple complex, a total of 256,000 lambs were killed. That's a lot, right? It was required to be one lamb per minimum of 10 people. So if your family was not as, you know, six of you, you might pair up with some other folks that didn't have family or whatever and to get to that 10 for your one lamb, okay? So it was a minimum of 10. So if you do the math, that's at least 2.5 million people that have come to Jerusalem within this time to for this Passover to, to be in the city. That's a lot of people in Jerusalem, if you know it's not really that big a city, okay? That's a lot of people, especially during this time. So it's crowded, really crowded. And they... <coughs> They wanted to be there. The people that were there, they, they flocked. It was required if you were within 15 miles of the city, you were required to come. But people would come outside of that because they wanted to. I mean, going to Jerusalem for the Passover, I mean, that's, that was just the ultimate deal. That was Even if you were somewhere else during that, you would end your, your Passover there with maybe next year, Jerusalem. There was always the hopes of making that pilgrimage and being in Jerusalem for the Passover. So it was a big deal. So there was Passover, and it also says, and unleavened bread. There was the Passover, this Passover meal, this one day, and then there was a week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So eight days total, one day Passover, seven days unleavened bread. Um, and But you hear this interchangeably all the time. People will talk about Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover, and they might, they're really referring to all that. It's really lumped all together. So you'll you'll hear whenever you hear either one, it's really referring to this whole deal um, <coughs> of, of what it means. So verse three it says, while he was in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. Your Bible may say spike nard, same thing, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Now this is Simon, it says Simon the leper, but it's Simon the former leper, because you're not allowed in town, especially in somebody's house, it's Passover, uh, if you actually have leprosy, okay? You were cast outside the town, and we know Jesus had healed him, and so you couldn't be in a house having a meal if you had leprosy. Um, so this is former leper, even though they call him Simon the leper, it's just to clarify who he is. Now the woman who does this is Mary of Bethany. We know that from the John 12 account. Like, remember, there's simultaneous, there's other accounts that's listed in of these stories in the, the Gospels. And so this is Martha and Lazarus's sister. Okay, this is Mary. So this meal, at this meal, there's Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Peter, the former leper, and the disciples. So there's like 12 people at least hanging out here, right? So Mary wanted to show her love for Jesus, and she had something that was very, very expensive. By the way, thinking of um, Simon the leper and Lazarus being there, 
would you not, would you, I just imagine, would you not love to have been in on the conversation between Simon the leper and Lazarus and what they would have talked about? Lazarus talking about, man, I, I lost a bunch of fingers, I, you know, what, you know, all this stuff, and then all of a sudden I got a whole hand, and Lazarus being like, oh, you think that's something, right? I was going towards the light, and they called me back, right? And they bailed this cloth all over me, and they finally got it off of me, and I was back. So, but it'd be an interesting conversation, comparatively. Maybe we can go back and Maybe in heaven it'll, we can just pull it up on YouTube on our cell phones and watch it. Okay? Lighten up a little bit. It's okay. All right. So this is worth this spikenard, this vial she has. It's a flask, real thin, long-necked little bottle. is made of alabaster, like a soft marble is what it is. And, but that's not what made this expensive. The actual contents of it is what made it expensive. This was worth, comparatively for us, over $10,000, just this little bottle. Okay? Very expensive. Um, it was made from a plant in India. It's a real small plant. It's not very big. And there's little bitty flowers, and there's these little, they call them fruit, but these little bulbs on it. And you have to take each one of those little things and squeeze out the oil, the juice that's in it, to make this. You can imagine to get a flask of it, it's at that time, it's a lot of work. So it's very expensive, and they liked it because of the smell of it. It only came from India at that time. Very hard to get and costly. And Mary had saved this for a special occasion. I can imagine possibly as time went on and she bought this, maybe she bought it for, the, for such an occasion, thinking of Jesus. Maybe she just had it and was like, I'm going to use that right now. It's not something you use every day. So Martha also wanted to show her love for Jesus, but how does Martha show her love for Jesus, if you remember that story, right? She's just working like crazy, busy in the kitchen, right? Taking care of everybody, serving. Mary showed her love through the gift of the of the nard being poured, poured over his head, and Martha through serving. Now, Martha gets portrayed as being like this terrible person. Like you hear preachers do that sermon, and it's like Martha was terrible, she was in there just ignoring Jesus and then jumped all over Mary for not helping her. And, you know, maybe so. But this, this was, I'm sure Martha's intent was, I'm showing Jesus I love him and I care for him by serving. So it's not to discredit serving, but there's times when we just need to stop and have an, just a personal, intimate moment with Jesus. And that can do a lot more in us than what serving all day long can do. If we don't have that relationship, that foundation of that intimacy with God, prayer, Bible reading for us, having that time with Jesus, all that serving, probably a little disconnected. Probably not worth a whole lot, right? As you've heard it said, it's through our relationship with Jesus Christ that everything else flows. So it's not that Martha is wrong, it's just in that moment Mary chose what was better. And her intent was to honor Jesus, but needed to pause and be with Jesus a little more. And we can show Jesus our love through both service and gifts. But Mary chose what was better in that moment. Isn't that, isn't that the story of our lives, really? I mean, I don't know if there's anybody in here that's not 
following Jesus closely or not doing not doing so well in certain areas because they're going, you know what? I mean, it may be, but I don't I don't know if anybody in here is this way. Of I'm I'm gonna instead of doing this, which would be good, I'm gonna go do this bad thing. Like there's no like. It's usually there's times, but there's most of the time for us, isn't it? Well, there's these there's this good thing, and I can't say no to that good thing. And we say yes to that, and in the process say no to what's best. Right? Because we can't do everything, our plate's full, and so to, to put something on the plate, we have to take something off, and usually usually I'd say it's the best things that lose out the most. And I don't know if you've noticed in Scripture, there's a lot of food references. Okay, Jesus ate a lot with people. That's one of the reasons I love him so much. Okay? Jesus, that's why I think Baptists are more correct than anybody else, right? Because we like to eat, okay? That's why we don't preach against uh, gluttony, right? You never heard of, I, I, I don't know if anybody in here, never heard of, I've never heard a sermon from a Baptist on, just on gluttony, right? But Jesus liked to eat meals with people. I do too, so I try to be like Jesus, right? And you've heard me refer to the marriage supper of the Lamb and coming one day when we're all with Jesus in the end and I look forward to that meal wonder what we'll have sometimes you know they often think that you know in heaven that they get tired of eating certain things and they're like let's just give it to them people down there right so Krispy Kreme's invented and then even better Smucker's Donuts comes along and they're like we're tired of Smucker's Donuts let's let them make them right so I can't imagine what we'll get for there I just know it'll probably be really good but it doesn't matter really knowing Jesus will be there. So, does that not, for me, does not, it just, I think about things like that and being there with him, sitting at this table, not exactly sure what it'll look like. I know I'm not going to be sitting right next to him, you know, kind of thing, but you kind of picture in your mind, I'm at least where I can see him. Is it going to be small group meetings like throughout the day, you know, or what, I, I don't know, right? But it'll be interesting. But it gives me this anticipation and this hope for the future. It like raises, like I know Jesus has saved me and that, that I'll be with him for eternity, but you hear these things, he says, hey, this is something that's going to happen when we're there. And it just heightens our anticipation. It does for me, for what's to come. No one will do stuff like that with Jesus. The sense of intimacy with our God. That's not, well, we'll be in heaven, but he's going to be way up there on some throne somewhere. And not, you know, we might get to see him once every thousand years or something, be around. You know, it's like, He's saying right off the bat, hey, this is, it's about a relationship, and we're going to have time for that. That sense of intimacy. You know, it says, the Bible says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And he who opens the door, I will come in, and I will sup with him, and he will sup with me. I mean, that's just a personal intimacy that Jesus, that's just that he relays to us that I just love. So Mark 14, 4 and 5 says, But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. So Mary, Martha, Lazarus were there. Um, here they are. you got the apostles. Um, so there, was, there was others there. Somebody else who had um, was there that night who had a special interest in the bottle. Okay, You had the 12 disciples. And even though Mark is not saying this, John lets us know. Mark's being really nice and not naming somebody. When you go to John 12, John's like, that dude, 
He's the instigator. He's the one that got this conversation going. It's all his fault. Okay? The person behind this conversation and prompting the scolding is Judas Iscariot. Okay? He was the treasurer treasurer of the gang, if you remember that part. Okay? He's the money handler. He'd control the money. And John tells us, uses a certain word that's kind of like klepto, uh, but uses this word that means to be a thief. By calculated, planning, slow manipulation. It's like figuring out how to skim off the top over a long period of time. It's that kind of connotation of the word. Jesus was critical of his fellow man and hypocritical before his God. And as a lesson here, just I would just say this because <coughs> Judas really gets into it with him with, uh, over this issue and comes after her and is critical when she was loving on Jesus. Okay? Just be critical of your own faults and easy on others. Okay? Always be easy on other people's faults. Be most critical of your own. We tend to do the opposite, right? Remember, Jesus would say, be careful of the speck in your brother's eye when you've got a log in your own, right? He's saying, hey, don't don't be critical of other people when you've got your own issues, right? Those are the words of Jesus. Um, my dad, he, he's a great golfer. Um, for for you, I used to get to play with him. They started doing all these tournaments and winning. So then I got bumped for better players, right? So... Uh, but dad does really good at, at golf. And so for many, many years, I used this really, it's it just one I've gotten comfortable with. It was a real small head club um, from back in the 80s, I think, 90s maybe at best. And I, I just, that's the one I played with. And dad talked me into, he's like, this, the head on that's really small. It's, it has a small sweet spot and it's not very forgiving, okay? So when you miss, like I do often, you really miss, and it's bad, right? So he finally talks me into using one of these big Bertha clubs, right? So I use that. And this, the new, those big head drivers, why everything's gone that way, it has a bigger sweet spot and is more forgiving, right? You can already hear it, right? You already know where I'm going. Not, I'm not call, telling y'all all to be big Berthas, Okay. But I often wish Christians had a bigger sweet spot and were a little more forgiving, right? And I'll point at myself first, right? That's how that should work. Verse 6. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can go do, do them. You can go do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Now Jesus is not saying to disregard those who are poor and hungry and not to help your fellow man, not to be concerned with those in poverty. (coughs) He's actually quoting Deuteronomy 15 from the Old Testament. Verse 11, it says, For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, 
to your needy and poor in your land. In other words, you're always going to have the opportunity to be generous. But right now, with me, Mary had the opportunity for personal intimacy with Jesus. And she chose to have that while she could. There's always an opportunity to be generous. So when you have the opportunity to have personal intimacy with God through Jesus, take it. Okay? Take it. Mary has anointed his body beforehand for burial. Translation, she brought she bought him flowers before he died. Okay? You get that? Not just for the funeral after he was gone. Which ought to help you understand. Don't be such a grouch that the only time you ever get flowers from anybody is at your funeral. Okay? Might want to watch that. Sweet spot for giving. Okay? If there's somebody you appreciate, don't wait until they're gone to let them know and give them gifts now. That would be better. The overarching idea here is grab every opportunity you have for personal intimacy with the Lord. Verse 9, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. So here it is in the Gospel of Mark. Here we are 2,000 years later, reading it right here, included in the Bible for all to hear. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this, and promised to give him money and began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. <coughs> so Judas, his actual his name, Judas means to praise, and Iscariot is a reference to where he's from. The is part is from, and and Iscariot or is is the rest of it. Cariot is this place, Cariot in Judah, the city there. Down south guy, he was not like the Galileans and the rest of the group. Um, given their view of the Messiah for all of them, they're thinking this guy's going to become, remember we've talked about this all through the book of Mark, they've got this idea that Jesus is coming, going to take over politically, overthrow Rome, set up his kingdom here and now on earth, and it's all going to be over with. And so set up the kingdom to rule forever. And you can see why possibly Judas, as as he got in the group and wanted to be, why he wanted to be in on this, if he was this kind of person. He's thinking, man, this guy's going to set it up. He's going to take over everything. I'll be a part of his cabinet. Then when he takes over, I'm going to be handling all the money. Think of how good that'll be for me, right? So it's easy to see why he would take up the position. It's harder to understand somewhat why Jesus would pick him, right? That's what we struggle with at times. Um. I mean, just remember, a few days before this, Jesus has rode into Jerusalem and been hailed as the Messiah. People have cheered and Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. He's rode in on the donkey. He's the, he, for the first time, he's declared to everybody he is the Messiah, right? And let that be and let them worship him as such. So he's thinking, man, this is great. Then it, Jesus goes in, turns over the tables in the temple, does all that stuff, and then all through that period of time, he's looking at these guys going, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I'll be raised from the dead, but I'm going to die. 
So nothing's really happening. He presented himself as the Messiah. Now he's saying he's going to die. So you can see Judas is probably, he's kind of like, man, this just ain't really going the way I thought it would go. I've got to find another way to get my peace, right? It's not happening how he thought. Francis Bacon, good name, said this, a bad man is a worse man when he pretends to be a good man. Judas was one of the twelve. Mark 14, verse 12. On the first day of the of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent the two disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you, carrying a pitcher of water, follow him, it was, which is an unusual sight. Usually women went and got the water. Men didn't do that during this time. So it would be an odd, it would have to have been possibly a very low servant that would have done this if it was a man, um, but it's still odd. So follow him, and whenever wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him, one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. So what you have at play here is that sovereign will or what you've heard me refer to as the providential will of God. There's that providential will, there's the moral will of God, and that's your goalposts and you're that you stay inside of that and that's where you're going to find your personal will, his personal will for your life, okay? Is between those. So this is one of those providential will of God happenings. This is happening because Revelation says that Jesus is the land slain before the foundations of the world, predetermined will of God. This is going to happen. Doesn't matter what you say about it, it's going to happen. Acts 2, 22-24 says this. This is even more amazing, okay? Listen to how all this plays out, okay? You can really, I probably overanalyze this stuff, but I love it. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man, this is, this is Peter preaching at Pentecost to those who had actually just, just taken part in all this. Okay? This man, listen to this part, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, comma, so there's that providential will of God, but let's, there's comma, and then it says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Plan of God, you're responsible. Okay? Plan to redeem you, but this is, this is who you are. Okay? But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. 
And this this is this is could easily branch off into that whole Calvinist Armenian argument and free will and choice and all that stuff. But this is just what I want to say when you read a verse like that. Is God sovereign? Can he do whatever he wants? Absolutely. Is there verses in there that give room for choice? What I see. How does that all fit together? I'm not God. I can't tell you all that. Okay? I just know they're in there. Okay? So I'm not in a camp, per se, as you know. Unless you want to put me in the Westland camp, I might be in there somewhat. But it, nobody's going to agree on everything altogether, right? So there's there's God's providential will, but then there's room for, but you're accountable for your choices. God sent him to be crucified, but you nailed him to a cross. Not that he couldn't have yanked himself off there if he wanted to. God sent him, you nailed him to a cross. You see that? God planned it out, planned it, but you carried it out. This was the will of God, but you are responsible because you are willingly engaging in it. Okay? Just like we do sin. We're, we're, we're not innocent victims of sin. We're willing participants. Okay? So why did Jesus pick Judas if he knew this would happen? Well, obviously it was to fulfill Scripture for things to play out like they are. It was the plan from the foundation of earth. Jesus knows what Judas is going to do, but it has to be done by someone. And Judas was a willing participant. Might, and, and this is where it comes back to the people struggle with. Well, did, did Jesus not love Judas? Oh, absolutely. Of course he did. But love means also that you, you know, from Jesus' perspective, you have to make yourself vulnerable. That's what loving someone does to you. It's a risk. Every time it's a risk. People go through bad relationships. And then they say, oh, now that that's over, how can I ever love anybody again? And not get hurt, got get, not get my heart broken again, right? Well, you can't. That's the answer. You can't. It's a risk every time to love somebody. You're, put it, you're, you're putting trust in them of your heart, and, and that has risk, okay? And appropriate, appropriately enough, Right? The band Nazareth saying love hurts, right? I think it's interesting. Nazareth, okay? I know that's 70s, not 80s, but it counts. That's my one for this morning, okay? Right? I've done a lot, I've done, and I've done a lot of weddings, right? And getting ready to do another next month. And, and they always stand there with that glazed over look in their eye. You know, they think they're in love, they're just in heat, right? And so their their eyes are glazed over. They're thinking, uh, oh, this is the ideal person for me, right? And they have this picture, right? I don't know if you've got there yet, Hunter, okay? This may be your experience. I'm not sure, okay? It, you've got this ideal picture of what the spouse is going to be one day, right? Or what they can be, what they are, okay? And 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 they they stand there at the altar with that blissful attitude, right? They just, everything's going to be great and, I'm not sure 
they really listen to what they're repeating because you have them do these vows that say for better or for worse, right? For richer or for poorer, sickness and in health. But in their picture that they're standing there of what this is going to be, I don't think worse, poorer, sick is in their picture of what they're picturing this is going to be, right? They're banking on better, richer health in that moment. Yes, I'm putting my chips in on that. That's what they're thinking, right? So they have this picture. In my wedding, we got to that line that says, until death do us part. I just lost it. I started crying, okay? Not because of any other reason than I meant what I was saying. Like I meant, okay, this is forever. It doesn't matter what that means. I'm not. I'm not walking out of this thing. That was 21 years ago, longer for some of you. As one pastor once said, when we get in, when you get engaged, you get engaged to an ideal person. When you get married, you marry a real person, right? Any relationship is that way. You, you're going to get hurt, but it's worth it. Once you realize you're married to a real person, you can either tear up that picture of the ideal person and love the real person. Or you can tear up that real person. And stay in love with that ideal picture. That you've got. Right. Judas was picked by Jesus. And he betrayed him. I'm sure it hurt. Verse 22, while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is the blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. What song did they sing? Probably what love hurts. Okay, It was probably... It's, most people understand it was a psalm um, in, the, in the psalms. Uh, I think it's 118 maybe. Um, but the Passover was centered around four glasses of fruit of the vine. Okay, Wine or grape juice, depending on what you believe. The first in the Passover meal was the cup of blessing of the Lord over those who were in attendance. And so the host opens the meal and it's a cup of blessing. The second was the cup of judgment, which referred to the plagues and God's judgment on the people God brought down upon Egypt and in releasing his children out of Egypt. Bread would be broken and dipped into the elements, <coughs> uh, like the bitter herbs and the halseth, that's the apple, nuts, honey mixture, um, which represented the mortar from all the building they did for Egypt as slaves. Um, after the meal, there was... An, um, the cup of redemption, the death of the firstborn and the, de the deliverance of their children from that. And the fourth and final cup was a cup of praise. And Jesus says he will not drink it again until the kingdom, until in the kingdom age when we get to sit and eat with him again. So until then, we have this memorial meal, the Lord's Supper. No longer the Passover, but the Lord's Supper since all those elements are fulfilled really in Jesus, right? And his death on the cross, blessing, judgment, redemption, praise, 
all in one cup, the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you are in Christ, you have placed your faith in Him, then you are blessed. Judgment passed for your sins, passed over you, you're redeemed, and now we praise Jesus for what He has done for us. And it's not anything you've done to save you from your sin. It's all His work on the cross, completely the work of Jesus. Not your good works, no law-keeping, None of that gets you saved. You can't earn your way to heaven. That's why, I can't believe, that's why I believe you can't earn your way out of it by something you do. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, isn't that wonderful that we don't have to do it? It's not us. But we just it, You don't have to earn it. Just accept it, receive it, believe it. Now when you do, it changes things. Holy Spirit comes inside and things start to change changes you for good, and out of that comes a love for Jesus like, Mar like Mary had, service like Martha had, and we can't help but praise Jesus for an eternity being there with him when it's all over. So I can't wait for next week. The second half of this chapter is really good. I've already started preparing. It'll be wonderful. But let's pray this morning as we close. I would just say this. If you've never received salvation through Jesus, you can do that right now. Because of the work Jesus did for you on the cross in your place for your sin, you can be redeemed. You can have your sin forgiven. Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of you. That same Pentecost speech that uh, Peter gave, they told him they, had, they nailed Jesus to the cross. It says they were cut to the heart. They say, they look at Peter and say, what do we do? And he says, repent. Be filled with the Holy, be baptized and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so you go, I feel God pulling me like he's calling me out. Like I, I can feel that tug in my soul and I need to turn my life over to him. You just, you just do that. You repent, you turn from you and your sin, being Lord of your own life, and you turn to Jesus. And you just, you just accept the work he's done for you and he becomes your Lord no longer you as Lord. You turn to Him or sin your Lord. Jesus is Lord. And He becomes your Savior. And so, just have that conversation with God right now. You just turn to Him. Say, God, best I know how I'm giving myself to You. I'm turning from me and my sin and because of the work Your Son Jesus did on the cross in my place for that sin. I can, I'm forgiven and I, I ask You to forgive me and and just may your Holy Spirit come inside of me and change me, and I just want to follow you for the rest of my life. <coughs> so we just say this morning, thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Father, we, as we pray, we just pray that we would have just a spirit of praise in us that would just not get up every morning and get busy about our day that we would take time for personal intimacy with you, Father, through your Son, Jesus, that we would not fail to praise you. We can't praise you enough, Father, but we so want to try, and I know you're pleased for us to try, and when we do, and so, Father, would we just not even miss this opportunity we're about to have during this song to just focus our hearts and our minds on you, to sing this as a praise to you, to listen for your voice as we pray, as we sing, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. Father, that we would be changed this week, that we would take opportunities to sit and be with you. 
that we would give you our best. That we would long to just bless you and love you like no other. That, that something like that vial of that of perfume would we get so upset over stuff. Jesus, you are so much more important and worth so much more than anything we can own on this earth. Help us not to put our security and our faith in money or things on this earth, but wholeheartedly in you. Help us to choose the best things, not just the good things. And we thank you for how you speak to us to help us do that. So I thank, each and every, thank you for each and every person here this morning. Just bless them and may we just be, our hearts be encouraged as we sing these praises to you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>